continue this fall dividing the sermon time between Amy and me. I keep looking for something related to the text, uh, a tangent from the text that might deepen our understanding, but not the, the focus of Amy's homily. And so today, appropriate for our Legacy Sunday, I get to talk to you about a little bit about what the Bible says about money. I know you're so excited about that. That's why you come to church every Sunday. But let us listen together. Amy will read the full text, but let me begin with these words from Luke's gospel. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. The gospel of Luke emphasizes the minority voice, speaking for women and outsiders and the poor. This perspective is exemplified by Luke's Christmas story in which the Christ child is born in a stable, and where angels share the news of the holy birth with lowly shepherds. There are no magi, those kings of the east. Throughout the gospel, Luke leans into God's priority for the poor. So when he tells us Zacchaeus was rich, well, that's about all we need to know. Jesus and the New Testament as a whole have very little good to say about money and those who have money. Now, I know this is a hard message, not one we like to hear, but it's true. You can go look at the Bible for yourself. In fact, Jesus says it's actually impossible for someone who is rich to get into heaven. Okay, it may not be impossible, but he says it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle which means pretty much impossible. While this may summarize Jesus' understanding of the corrupting power of money, I keep telling you that the Bible is not easy and that there's more than one theology in its pages. So while Jesus' basic message about money is critical, if you read the Bible that Jesus knew, which would be our Old Testament, the, the predominant take on money is that money is a sign of God's blessing. The book of Deuteronomy so clearly defines this understanding that scholars call it the Deuteronomic theology. In short, if you are righteous, if you are righteous, God will bless you. Now, you could also call this the prosperity gospel, that flawed pandering of daddy grace and thousands of other money-grubbing evangelists, but it's in the Bible. Let me just read it for you. If you will only obey the Lord your God, all these blessings will come upon you. Blessed shall you be in the city and in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, the fruit of your livestock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. If you love God, all the material blessings will come your way. But no sooner had this theology been spoken than the Old Testament prophets started rising up against it. Now, we reviewed some of this critique this summer from prophets like Micah and Amos who harshly condemned the rich and the comfortable, those who were so proud of their religion because they were failing the poor. The prophets said, you have forgotten the covenant. You've forgotten what it's all about. You have forgotten that you have been blessed, but only so you can bless others. 
So there is that criticism of the people. And then the unconventional wisdom of Ecclesiastes speaks the obvious truth of money itself. Whoever loves money never has enough. Ain't that the truth? When Jesus comes along, this biblical critique of a biblical theology has been codified in the prophetic tradition. And Jesus squarely identifies in that tradition. So like the prophets before him, many of Jesus' teachings are framed by the polarities of the insiders and the outsiders, the extremes of the haves and the have-nots, and Jesus always sides with the outsiders and the have-nots. When a young man comes and asks him how to have eternal life, Jesus says, sell your possessions, give it all to the poor, then you can come and follow me. He tells his disciples, you cannot serve both God and money. Take your pick. He says, those who want to save life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Who cares where the stock market is if you have no morality? He says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. For wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And after Jesus, Paul's instruction to the young Timothy captures the prophetic critique of wealth when he says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And as you know, it's hard not to love money. So if we must be honest about it, the Bible has very little good to say about money. But one thing that is clear is the belief that wealth, however much of it you have, comes from God, the great benevolent source of all good things. Our treatment of money, then, should be characterized by a discipline of stewardship. It is not ours. It is God's. So how are we using the money we've been entrusted? How are we using our money for God, for good in the world? From the very beginning, Scripture makes clear that we are, in fact, our brother's keeper, our brother's and sister's keepers. And this keeping includes the use of our money. Deuteronomy says, if anyone is poor, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. And Jesus says the final judgment on our faith will be how we have cared for the least of these among us. Also central to the Bible's understanding of our use of our money is the practice of the tithe. Enshrined early in the Old Testament's teaching, the faithful are to give the first tenth of their produce, as summarized in the book of Proverbs. Honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops. Now again, to be honest about all this, while it is central to biblical teaching, instruction about the tithe also changes in the Bible. As religious life in ancient Israel became more organized at the height of temple worship, let's be honest, when the priest began to get their hands on the money, the tithe went from one-tenth to three separate tithes required. There was 10% required for the Levites and 10% required for the priests and 10 more percent required for the poor. 
And on top of this 30% of religious taxation, the peasants of Jesus' day were burdened even more by Roman taxation, which explains why Zacchaeus and other tax, tax collectors were so despised. While tithing has been central to Jewish life from the very beginning, true to his prophetic instinct, Jesus also critiques the legalism of this practice, saying, Woe to you, hypocrites! You tithe, but you have neglected justice and mercy and faith. You blind guides, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. And we're back to the poor, beleaguered camel. Now, what I'm trying to say to you, all I'm trying to say to you this morning is that there is no simplistic reading of Scripture on any subject. You can quote chapter and verse and support trickle-down economics and communism. So again, let me call us as a Christian congregation to the life of Jesus as our guide. And in light of his example, in light of giving all for the greater good, on this Sunday we call Legacy Sunday, I'll end with my grandfather's admonition, which I believe is biblical through and through. Amy and I have practiced his mantra all our lives. You have heard it before. It has served us well, and I commend you again. Tithe 10%. The first 10%. Save 10%. And spend the rest with joy and thanksgiving. Now, I am never hesitant to encourage you to give a full 10% of your income. A tithe is easy to calculate. You know, you just move the decimal point. Um, the tithe is enough charity that you will feel it in your wallet, which might be part of the point. But it's not enough to keep you from a prosperous and joyful life. I promise you that. With the cultural trends pressing in around us, it is more important than ever for church people to support the church. If you do not finance the good work of this community of faith, no one else is going to do it for us. But even if you don't give 10% of your tithe, your full tithe to the church, let me encourage you, tithe 10% somewhere. Save 10% and spend the rest with joy and thanksgiving. Across the history of this whole world, we too are rich. But that does not have to be criticism. May it be so. Amen. This story of Zacchaeus has become a favorite among children because of the song. You might hear it in just a little bit. But it's not a children's story any more than Noah's Ark is a children's story. What a horrific story to tell our children, isn't it? Well, this one has the same factors in it. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, 
Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. Would that salvation would come to all of our houses. You have heard the ancient story. Even though I put the order of worship together earlier this week and knew that this was the anthem, I didn't even think about it when I wrote the first paragraph to this homily. I've spent some time standing under glorious trees of red and orange and yellow in the last couple of weeks for the beauty of the earth. Just looking up through the bright colors, mesmerized by the beauty of it. Russ is getting tired of me pointing out, but just look at that one. I can't get enough, and I'm a bit sad to see the leaves begin to drop. We are in need of beauty these days. So pay extra attention in these waning days of fall foliage not to miss it and be awestruck by it for the beauty of the earth. There may have been a time a long time ago when I would have thought of climbing one of those trees to see the view from within it and from above. But unlike the grown man named Zacchaeus, I think I have passed the days of climbing trees. Now I just stand under them and look up, like literally get right up under it and just look up. But I think it might do us well to consider imagining Zacchaeus's view from the treetops. I'm so curious what in the world compelled Zacchaeus to want to see Jesus so badly that he would work his way through the crowds that were following Jesus and climb up in a tree, a grown man, which in that day a grown man would have never done something like that. Not that I see a lot of grown men doing it today, but it would have been beneath them. So what compelled Zacchaeus to get a better view, to hear a little better? You see, I think the children's song that we've learned to sing about this wee little man makes him a very endearing character to us. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. Complete with motions and a sing-songy tune that just makes us, I don't know, just kind of love this little guy. 
Trust me when I say Zacchaeus was not lovable. And everybody in that crowd would have known who he was, and they would have hated him. He was greedy. He took advantage of people. He cheated people in order to line his own pockets. He was a chief tax collector, a title that is not given to anyone else in the Bible. So when we have these notions about the ickiness and the horribleness and the scoundrelness of tax collectors, Zacchaeus was chief among them. Now what I would now what would make a guy like that want to hear and see from a guy like Jesus? The fact that Zacchaeus goes to such lengths feels this pull towards this one who has come to save us most often from ourselves. Salvation, let me stop there. I'm so sad that all the bad theology about heaven and hell has been wrapped up in that word salvation that we're scared to ask, have you been saved? From yourself. We all need to be saved, to be made whole, to be made new, to be restored. Who doesn't need that? Salvation is not a bad word. It's a word we need to cling to. So the fact that Zacchaeus had this pull towards Jesus completely blows my preconceived notions that by and large people do not and cannot change. Am I the only one with those preconceived notions? That people just become more so of who they are, all the good and all the not good? I was so thrilled to find this C.S. Lewis quote this week. You can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. I think that's what Zacchaeus did. Perhaps the view from the treetops really does change people when we catch a glimpse of the big picture. Perhaps the big picture helps us to not be so greedy when we can see others in need. Perhaps the view from the treetops helps us to see the many, many people who are clamoring for a good word like the one Jesus came to bring us. Those people living in such dire situations that we cannot see when we're just walking along on our path, our own path, and don't bother to look up from the view from above. The view from the treetops will show us the pockets of poverty. The view from the treetops will show us the sick and the lame and the despairing. The view from the treetops will show us the people that are hungry and hurting and lonely and grieving. The view from the treetops, it's a view that might just change us like it changed Zacchaeus. People can change. Zacchaeus proved that to us. It dawned on me that when Zacchaeus had a change of heart, he changed his actions And that one change in action had a ripple effect for those pockets of poverty 
for all of those that were sick and lame and despairing, for all of those that were hungry and hurting and lonely and grieving. The change of heart that moved Zacchaeus to change his actions changed the lives of those that received the financial benefit of his change of heart. You see, the sing-songy version that gets stuck in our head like an earworm of the wee little man makes us clap and celebrate Zacchaeus. I'm going to your house today. I'm going to your house today. But can't you just imagine all the people that heard Zacchaeus' promise to pay back and restore what had been taken from them and withheld from them and to do it fourfold? All the people were clapping, not for Zacchaeus, but for being made whole, for being made new, for being restored themselves. Their financial insecurities were redeemed. Can you imagine what it feels like when you are scraping by paycheck to paycheck, not making it and deciding which bill not to pay in order to put food on your table and someone comes in with some extra, with some generosity, with some relief? They must see it down at crisis assistance every day that they keep someone from being evicted, every day that they turn on someone's power, every day that they send them to loaves and fishes, every day that they let them into their food closet. They must see the relief every day. I can assure you that every single time I get to be a part of helping one of those tough situations, I see it. And it happened just recently because of the church's generosity, not mine. But I got to write the check for you. I got to bring release. The tears that came, the exhale, the ability to take a breath because relief had come. I'm convinced that the view from the treetops would make us work to make that kind of thing happen all the time. We would stop wanting to withhold we would stop wanting to squander. We would stop wanting to accumulate so much if we could see the relief that came. The celebration for the salvation of Zacchaeus comes when we celebrate all the people that were affected by Zacchaeus's change of heart. The celebration comes when people's lives are really changed because I have a change of heart. Don't celebrate me when I'm generous. Celebrate the beneficiaries of my generosity. I can picture it now. Wee little Zacchaeus up in that tree. And the crowds cheering because he and they had been saved. They had been made whole. They had been renewed. They had been, they have been restored. So perhaps we need to shimmy up some trees ourselves. Stop looking at them from below and catch a view from the treetops so that Jesus can come to our house today 
He's coming to your house today. He's coming to your house today. Coming to your house today. If we are generous. May it be so.